Okay, so today I'm going to do the book of Esther. Has everyone read, or most of us read the book of Esther? At some point or the other? Okay. If you haven't, it's a really, it's a short book and it's a really great story. So Esther was written approximately about 483 to 473 BC. And it's part of uh, the story of the exiles in the Persian Empire. And Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther together make up like the, the closing chapters of Jewish history in the Old Testament. So this is, even though it's a historical book, it actually um, is, is a narrative. It, it's, that's how it is. It's a story. And I guess I love telling stories as a lot of you know, and sometimes tall stories, but uh, <laughs> these stories, like my kids say, mom, or my sisters say, you always embellish your stories. So I go, well, it makes them a little more exciting, but I can't do that with God's prayer. <laughs> so, so Esther is actually seen as uh, the diaspora survival. That's where the Jews were exiled into, into the Persian Empire, and uh, this is their survival because there's a plot against them to destroy them. And then Ezra and Nehemiah are seen more as revival or restoration of the Jews in their own land, okay? Now, as Ryan pointed out, uh, as Ryan pointed out to us, that God was, uh, God had sent these Persian kings who were very favorable, actually, to the Jews' people returning back to their homeland, building the temple, restoring the wall. So they, it, was, it was an advantage to them. And Esther, but not everybody left. You can just imagine the, the whole condition of Israel was, it was ground zero. So hard work. The fields were overrun, so it would be hard labor. Whereas staying in the Persian Empire, there was a lot of wealth and affluence and opulence and comfort. So it was much easier to do that. And our main characters in this story, uh, Mordecai and Esther, were Jewish, and their families chose to remain there. So... Uh, I want to say that the main theme in this book is the sovereignty and the providence of God. And, you know, many times I myself in the past have interchanged those two words, uh, but I just want to clarify what each means, okay, as we go through this. And the sovereignty of God really talks about God's position as sovereign Lord, all power and all authority belong to him. And the providence of God is God actually working 
to bring about his plans and purposes, but he does it in such a way by directing, guiding, you know, changing things along the way, and ultimately accomplishing his plan. His plan and his purpose are predestined. They're, pre they're already planned. And so we are all part of his kingdom, living out this plan, and so he moves us around, changes things around. And you'll see that throughout the story. Now, the funny part about this book is God is never mentioned in this book. Never mentioned in this book. Prayer is never mentioned in this book. Um, there's no prophecy really relating to this book. And uh, also, even the Torah is not referred to or mentioned in this book. So it's quite strange, but it's not an accident. It's actually deliberately done. It's a, it's a certain writing style. It's a device used to get us as readers to look at this and say, is that coincidence? Is that chance? No, this has to be God, because we begin to see traits of God throughout the whole story and say, that has to be God, that has to be God. And you actually end up seeing God on every page of the story. So it's quite interesting, but it, it makes you want to, by the middle of the story, you'll be actually looking for God to come, to appear, you know, in different, in different ways in this book. So uh, the, it, also, it also confirms to us that the hiddenness of God does not mean the absence of God. And so we need to remember that God is always here. He's here right now. He's with us. He's with us in our workplaces. He's with us in every situation, you know? And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So that's the story. I know I have a lot of notes, but don't worry. It's large font. So, <laughs> so this story is about God's redemption of his chosen people. Now, remember, he's a God of promise, even as we sang that song today. He keeps his promise. And so over here, he made a promise that from his chosen people, a Messiah will come who will save mankind and bring them to a place with him where they rule and reign as priests and kings together with him. So this is his, his purpose, his plan. And everything has to work in accordance with that. Now, there are four main characters in this book. So the first is King Xerxes, who is also called Ahasuerus. There are different ways of pronouncing this name. Ryan had a, a very Persian way of pronouncing it. I'm pronouncing it the Indian way because, you know, in India, we have a whole community of Persians. I grew up with them. And uh, they're all remnants of the Persian Empire, descendants of them right through, just as with the, the diaspora, because the Persian Empire it was so vast and extended all the way from northeast Euphrates right up to the northwest India, which used to be Kush. So a lot of the remnants, a lot of the people remain. We have a, like a huge Jewish community in India, the south of India, <laughs> which is quite something, right? So, yeah, God scattered his people. So King Xerxes, the Persian ruler, he rules over one of the largest empires in the world. And uh, it's pretty impressive. And it consists of a lot of different countries that all speak different languages, worship different gods, we have different cultures, eat different foods. So it must be quite a colorful kingdom. And he rules over it. Now, his queen is Queen Esther. And she is actually a young Jewish girl. And she is taken from her home and brought to the palace. Her cousin is Mordecai, who's also a character in the story, and Mordecai works for the king. So we see and Mordecai actually adopted Esther. Esther was orphaned at a young age, and he took her as his own daughter and raised her. And the last person is Haman, who's the villain of the story. So this is really 
like a superhero story. So <laughs> sit tight and listen. So Haman, yeah, he's also called over here as the enemy of the Jews, and he's called Haman the Agatite, and we'll see why he's called that, okay? The author is unknown. Now, it all points to Mordecai as being the proposed author. Mordecai was supposedly a person who studied the Torah and taught it. He was a religious leader, and in this book we see at the end that He's actually written out the events of Esther himself. So quite possibly it is him, but there's no proof that it is him. So the book opens with a great feast. There are lots of feasts in the book, and the book opens with a great feast thrown by the king of Persia, and he's showing off. You know, well, he's very wealthy. He's rich. He's, he's extravagant. He's got everything. He really is the biggest king in the world at that point because... Persia consisted of most of the then known world, so of course he has every reason to boast. And he has all his nobles and governors coming in, and the wine is flowing freely, and this banquet is lasting for about 180 days. And during this time, he says, you know what, let's bring Queen Vashti out. Now she's supposed to be drop-down gorgeous, and he wants her to wear all her queenly attire, and come and parade herself before all these drunken officials. And Vashti refuses. And I thought, good for you, you know? <laughs> because, uh, and because I would have done the same. It's quite humiliating. But this humiliated the king, and he was angry. And as a result of that, he consulted with his men, and they suggested to him that he has... An audition brings in all the virgins from his entire empire. He replaces the, the queen with someone who's better than her. So this is going to happen now. This is where Esther comes in. So Esther is a young girl. She's in Mordecai's care. And she's taken. Because it's, it's quite shocking if you think about how does Mordecai allow this. He's a religious teacher. He's a Jew. And they're so particular about sexual morality. But here we see that they're taken to the palace. So they don't have much say. It's exiles. You lose some rights. And this is one of them. Now, uh, when, Ed, when Esther comes into the palace, she's starting to gain favor with everyone. And we see that Mordecai says to her, whatever you do, do not disclose your true identity or ethnicity. So she's, she's very obedient to Mordecai. She's obeyed him, uh, obeyed him since she was a very young girl, and she follows through. Now, I want us to see in chapter 2, verses 15 to 18, we see how God's favor starts to surface through, through his people. And I'll read, when Esther, when Esther was in the palace, she was winning the favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when she was taken to King Ahasuerus, now this is what happened. The audition was like this. All these virgins come into the palace, and for one year, they're going through beauty treatments. Ladies, imagine that. One year, you're going through beauty treatments. And after the one year, you are called to the king's chamber for one night. So the audition takes place in his bed. Isn't that? Sick, 
<laughs> I don't mean nice sick about growing. <laughs> so, so they're taken to the king's chamber for one night, and based on their outward beauty and their performance, they're chosen by him. So you have this small window of opportunity, and if you make it, you're, you're called again. But if you're not, you go to harem number two, where you become a, you remain a concubine for life. You cannot leave the palace. You cannot marry. You'll never have children unless the king chooses to have children with you, which is a very small percentage of those concubines. And then you turn into a widow, and widow over there. That's your destiny. Isn't that sad? So all these hundreds, maybe thousands of girls coming in, and that's it. They work one year, and then they see the king once, and then chances are they'll never see him again. And they're destined to remain there, you know. So, when, so now we see when, the, when it was Esther's turn and she came to the king, the scripture says, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And you think about this. this is, she's, she's an orphan. She had nothing. She finds her way into the palace. It could never be. She didn't earn it. She didn't earn her beauty. She didn't earn this position, and the king chose her. You can just begin to see, I'm, I'm going to point out every time you see the providence of God, where God is moving, changing, directing, and making a way for his plan. So now we see Mordecai, her cousin. Mordecai, I said, worked in the palace too, but he's at the king's gate, okay? Now, the gate is quite a crucial place for one to be because you know everyone that's coming in and going out. You can overhear what's happening in the, in the courts. You can overhear what's happening in the streets, and so he becomes like a source of information. And while he's there, he hears two of the king's men arguing and fighting, and they're very angry with the king, and they're plotting to assassinate the king. And Mordecai overhears it. Chance? Coincidence? You know? So he quickly relays it to Esther through a messenger and says, you need to tell the king. And Esther goes, and reports that to the king, and the king tries these two men, finds them guilty, and they are hung on the gallows. By the way, the gallows are the in thing there. If, if someone's not happy with you, you go to the gallows. It's, you know, it seems to be common. But now the king always records everything like this in, in a book, the chronicles or memorable deeds done for him. And normally what he does is he would reward that person right away. But in this case, Mordecai is overlooked. And you say, why? You know, providence again over here. Mordecai is overlooked. Well, the next day, we hear in the story that the king promotes Haman. Now, Haman is now promoted to second in command to the king. He's sitting on a throne over all the nobles and governors, he has a throne. And the king writes a law that everyone, every subject in his kingdom who sees Haman has to bow in homage to Haman. So 
Mordecai refuses. But it doesn't say why Mordecai refuses in the story. Now, right at the beginning of the story, you'll, you'll see Mordecai's ancestral line. And he is a descendant of King Saul. He's a Benjamite, and he's a descendant of King Saul. And if you go back, I think it's 1 Samuel 15, where God said to Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. And the reason being, the Amalekites tormented the Israelites when God rescued them from Egypt and was taking them to the Promised Land. And they made life hellish for the Israelites, and God said, I will wipe them out, you know? And he actually gave that command to Saul, and Saul disobeyed. He killed most of them, but he saved King Agag. And actually, Samuel, the prophet, had to come in and slay him because God was so angry with Saul for doing that. And God said, do not touch the plunder. Wipe them out, but don't touch the plunder. And Saul disobeyed in that too and took some of the spoil and let his soldiers, you know, have it. So we see that disobedience, and then we see now there's a constant enmity. Haman is a descendant of King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites, and there's a constant enmity there, so that could be, it doesn't say in the story, but it could be why Mordecai refused to bow down to him, you know, paying homage now. So some of the king's officials in the palace reach out and say, Mordecai, why are you not bowing? Why are you not doing what the law says you should do? And he doesn't answer. But they go and tell Haman, Mordecai will not pay homage to you. But we know he is a Jew. So here's Haman, uh, Haman's plan. I won't just destroy Mordecai. Because now he's got all power. He's second in command to the king. He can do anything. And he has favor, the favor of the king. I'll destroy all the Jews. Ooh, that's pretty serious. That's, you know, pretty serious. It's going to hurt. So, chapter 3, verse 13, he starts sending letters out. Letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. In one day. And that was a huge Jewish population in the Persian Empire. How does he decide where and when to do this? He rolls a dice. He rolls a dice, and based on the numbers that he gets, he says, okay, it'll be on this day of this month of this year, and that's it. They're going, they're going to be eliminated from here. And then the king says, you know what? That's great. Here's my signet ring. Now, this is the king. No questions, nothing. He just takes, he just takes the advice that's given to him, and he says, go with it, go with it. You know, it's pretty foolish. He says, the money is given to you, the people also, do with them as seems good to you. So here we have a wicked scheme. And the king and Haman sit down to drink. You can just imagine, like, they're pretty happy that this is going to happen. And I love the way, I love what, um, the way Haman says to the king. He said, listen, there is a certain people 
scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it's not the king's profit to tolerate them. And if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And then he promises the king that he's going to put a treasure into the king's treasury money. And this pleases the king too. So the king says, go with it, right? Now, this sounds a lot like when Ryan uh, preached last Sunday and he told us about the kings of the eastern Euphrates who ganged up against the Jews who were building the temple. And they said, they sent a message to Cyrus, the king of Persia, saying, there is a people who are different. There is a people who will not pay taxes. And I'll tell you that once uh, the temple is erected, they will never pay taxes to you again. This is not profitable. So pretty similar, you see, what, what the enemy is doing behind the scenes over here, setting them up to be destroyed. Why? It's God's promise that from the chosen people, a Messiah will come who will save the world. And so at any cost, he wants to squish this plan. But it's a promise of God. And Mordecai hears of this. Now, Mordecai's at the gates. So that's the place where he gets his information. He hears about this. And so he quickly sends a message. He starts, he put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, have you heard sackcloth and ashes is, uh, is a way of showing everyone that you're in mourning and fasting, that you really need the attention of God and the attention of people to something serious that is happening over here. And uh, so he cannot come into the king's palace in that attire. He's not allowed. But he sends a message to Esther. He sends a copy of the decree. And it says, he told Esther that this is what's going to happen to the people. They're going to be destroyed. And he told Esther that she must go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, the thing is, Esther has not disclosed her identity to the king. Now, she's going to have to if she's pleading the case. Now, think about this. She's come from nothing. Think about all of us if you were in a situation like this. She's come from nothing. She was nobody. She didn't even have parents of her own. And now, by God's grace and favor, she is moved into the palace she has now experienced a position of fame, fortune, comfort, luxury, pleasure, power. And Mordecai is saying to her, go and plead. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a lot to give up, isn't it? That's a really hard place to be in, to make a choice like that. And so she has to think, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. So she has to think bigger than herself. And when I thought about this, I thought, wait, Mordecai can afford to send her this thing. This is what you have to do. You have to go to the king. You have to plead for yourself and this people. Because I think about Mordecai. He was content, single guy, you know, living his life. But when his cousin was in trouble, he had to forget about himself and take her in and look after her and adopt her and make sure she, you know, she, was, she was cared for. So he knows what that's like. So Mordecai said to Esther, said, listen, you know 
that if anybody approaches the king, this was Persian law, you could never approach the king in, his, in, his, in the inner courts unless he summoned you. If he didn't summon you and you showed up, it was instant death. That's the law, instant death. So he's asking Esther to do this and face the penalty of death. You know? So Esther says, I can't. Now, it reminded me of, you know, when God uh, appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Pharaoh. I want you to do this and more. He said, no, 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 I can't. No, pick someone else. Pick someone else because I can't even speak. I stutter and stammer. Haven't you noticed? No, pick someone else. And so, you know, sometimes when the assignment is so huge, it's terrifying. And when you're in a place of comfort, it's even worse because you're thinking about all you have to give up. It's a cost that is so high. I don't know if I'm willing to pay it. So she's faced with this. And this part of the story is actually, it, it arrests us. And so it's very important to remember. This is something you may have heard many times, these lines. Um, and if you haven't, it's okay, you'll hear it today. So Mordecai, when Esther responds like that, that she, it, it wouldn't be right, she can't, you know, she can't do this. Mordecai sends a reply to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's because God's providence is at work. If I say no, he's going to send another savior, you know? But one way or the other, his plan will proceed because that's his will. Relief and deliverance would rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish because she is a Jew. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows if you as a little orphan girl with nothing... God made a way for you to get in here. The way may have been different and not exactly what we wanted, but God positioned you here. And he positioned you here not to just make you queen, but there's a purpose of his behind this whole thing. You know? So who knows? That's all we need to hear. Who knows if God has called us to this place at this time for, for a very, very specific purpose that fits in with his plan. That's all Esther needed to hear. She says, go gather all the Jews in Susa. Susa was the capital city in which the, which the palace was. And she said, fast. Now again, there's no mention of God. Fast on my behalf. There's no mention of God here. No mention of prayer. No, don't. She didn't say fast and pray. She just said fast on my behalf, you know. And Mordecai goes out and he organizes all that and everyone's fasting. Now, obviously, it's obvious that if you fast and put yourself in a place where you are actually crying out, who are you crying out to? To God. Where you're seeking his help, you're seeking his provision, you're speaking, seeking a word from him. So, Esther, she's smart. She decks herself in her queenly attire. 
And then I can just imagine how terrified she must have been. She actually goes to the inner court and she's standing at the entrance to the court. And the king is on his throne and he sees her and he must have been smitten by her beauty because the scripture says she was very beautiful and she had a very nice figure. <laughs> so, you know, she had two things in her favor, at least. <laughs> and he's just smitten by her and he extends the golden scepter to her. That means favor. And so she can come in. And he said, Esther, Queen Esther, what is your wish and what is your request? Ask me for anything up to half my kingdom, you know? Because he did love her. And so she said, what I want to ask you is, I'm having a feast tonight and I want you and I want Haman to come in. Okay? Now, Haman was delighted because now he's thinking, whoa, I knew I had the king's favor, but now I had the queen's favor too. And he's delighted. So he goes and tells, he goes and tells, I think that's where he tells his wife. But before that, Esther says, did I say Esther said I would go to the king though it is against the law? I forgot to say that. Well, she did. She made a decision that she was going to the king, even if it's against the law, she said. And these are her words, if I perish, I perish. So you see, you see the whole process here. Esther came into the palace as a very compliant girl, orphan. She knew she didn't have much. She had nothing. Her beauty she didn't earn. God gave it to her. It was a gift. You know, a position she didn't earn. God gave it to her. He placed her there. Everything, all the favor she had was because of God, not her. And so now she has to put it all aside and she comes to a place of complete surrender. This girl who was so compliant and so obedient and never spoke up, she just did everything she was told, now has to take a very courageous stand. And she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to die anyway. I'll die just for being a Jew because of the law now, the edict that's, that's sent. And I'll die for going to the court. But the king hasn't summoned me, so I'll take the chance and go. And she does it. And now she's in her robes and the king gives her favor. And we see that they go to the feast. Now, after the feast, Mordecai is going home and he's on in seventh heaven and he's, he may even have a skip in his step as he's willing to tell his wife but you'll never believe but who should be in the courtyard Mordecai and it infuriates him and I love what he said to his wife is even though I have the king's favour even though I'm in the, I'm the second highest in command nothing matters when I see Mordecai it crushes everything else and takes over you know and his wife comes up with a suggestion. His wife and his kids say, why don't you just make a gallows over here? And why don't you get the king's permission to hang Mordecai on it? You're second in command. You, can, you know, this is, this is no big deal. So he agrees. He agrees. But that night, that providence again, that night, 
The king cannot sleep. Something's bothering him. So when he wakes up in the morning, he calls his men and says, read to me from the book of memorable deeds. So they start reading. And he goes, wait. Mordecai saved my life. Was anything done for him? And they go, no, of course. Who's in the court? It was quite early in the morning, but Haman was just entering the court. See, chance, coincidence, providence. He was just entering the court with a plot, with a scheme now to convince the king that he was going to hang Mordecai. Mordecai needed to be hung on those gallows. And as he comes in, the king says, oh, Haman, come on in here. And we see... I'm thinking about this whole story and can't help remembering the scripture that says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's God's purpose that prevails. You know? Mm -hmm. So Mordecai has his plans. And the king's wondering what to do. And the king calls Haman in and says, Haman, here's the situation. What do you think the king should do? when he chooses, it will delight him to honor someone. And Haman thinks, who else would he want to honor but me? (laughs) You know, know, I'm telling you folks, that's, that's a typical image of pride. Pride does that. Pride only thinks about yourself, you know? And nothing else matters in the whole world, just me. I, me, and myself. And he goes, it's got to be me. Oh, my gosh, let me quick think on my feet quickly about a plan. And so he says, and Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming to everyone, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. And so the king likes that plan. Again, he doesn't question it. He just says, mm, let's go with that, you know? Let's go with that. Now you... Take my robes, take my horse, and take, dress Mordecai, and take him out into the city. You can just imagine what's happening to Haman. (laughs) Oh my gosh! I mean, Haman's just come back from boasting to his wife and building gallows to hang Mordecai on. And now there's a turn of event. Can never be chance. Can never. This is a planned planned thing by God. So we see God in this. And Haman has no choice, but they used to have a slave or a servant to lead the horse to the whole place so that everyone could, you know, it had to be someone lowly, but the king said, choose the most, no, the, the most, what, prestigious noble in his kingdom. That would be Haman himself. <laughs> so now he's going through and he has to point to Mordecai and not to himself. Oh my gosh, that was terrible, you know. And that evening, like, he goes and tells his wife, Zeresh, and his friends everything that happened. And here's what his wife says. It's, it's like a prophecy. She says, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. 
but maturely fall before him. She's actually speaking out what the plan is going to, how it's going to end. Now, at the banquet that night, the second feast, Haman and the king come, and the king asks Esther to reveal her plan. And Esther says, King, I really need you to save my life and the life of my people. And he goes, what? Who would plan to do anything like this to you? And she points out to Haman. And then the story goes with Haman, the king's men come into the room, they grab Haman, and then they have wind that Haman has built the gallows for Mordecai. So he's taken and he's hung on the very gallows that he erected for Mordecai, you see. So we see a reversal. And the king now allows Mordecai to write an edict, just go into all the provinces. Unfortunately, with Persian law then, you couldn't revoke an edict that you passed and was done with the signet ring of the king. But he allowed them to make another edict where the Jews were allowed now to defend themselves at any cost. And he also issued uh, uh, a note to all his governors and officials to help the Jews to fight against their enemies. And there was mass killing and, you know, blood and all that. I was reading about 75,000 of their enemies were slain. That's pretty serious, right? But, and we see that he gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. Queen Esther then um, also uh, introduced Mordecai to him as her cousin. And so um, the king took the signet ring that he had given to Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And then he gave Haman's position to Mordecai. So you see what's happening over here. There's a shift, there's an exchange uh, of what was destructive, what was speaking of death and annihilation now to power and rule and reign. And, and uh, Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You know, I go right back to Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's all of us, too, you know. And I just want to draw our attention to a few small things here. Um, that word gallows in the Persian language is actually tree. It is tree. And so we begin to see like a symbolism over here of Jesus being crucified on a tree, you know. And uh, Jesus, it, it, when Jesus was crucified, it was actually that, that cross. It was made, it, I don't know if it actually, yeah, it looked like a cross, but it was made from a tree that the religious folk, his enemies, had a plot. They were, it was his death. It was his death. But in actual fact, as I think it was Mike who, who in preaching Deuteronomy, said it was not Jesus who was defeated on that cross. It was Satan. He was crushed. Remember in the garden, Jesus said that the offspring of the woman would crush your head. He was crushed on that cross. So we see Haman built it for Mordecai. The cross was built for Jesus, but Satan was crushed on it. Haman was crushed on it. You see? So... And God, in his, in his sovereignty, 
in his sovereignty. He uses the enemies, even the enemies' plots and schemes and devices to fulfill his own purpose. Like, we're, we're talking right now about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, you know. And initially, I was saying, God, my prayer was very short, precise, and to the point, you know. <laughs> God, crush Putin's head like a cockroach. Just crush him. And, this, and then I'm thinking, wait, God has a plan. He has a much bigger plan. And he will use every strategy and device of the enemy to even fulfill his plan and his purpose, you know. So, uh, I, I, there's a little comparison here. I was thinking about Esther, how she started off with nothing, and everything she had was a gift from God to her in her place, right? But in comparison, Jesus, Jesus is God. All things were made by him, for him, through him, you know, for him. But he emptied himself. That's what Philippians chapter 2 says. He emptied himself to come to us. Esther, in order for her to save the Jews, she had to be able to identify with the Jews. You know, Jesus was God, but he identified as man to keep the form of a servant. Okay. He was God, but he chose to identify himself as man so that he could rescue us. Um, Esther was willing to sacrifice all when she came to a point in her life and risk her life to save her people. Jesus chose to humble himself and accept death, even death on the cross, which is said, cursed is every man who hang on, hangs on a tree, that was him. Esther obtained the king's favour. And God, uh, for herself, her people, and saved her people, and even at the end of the story, it shows that there was conversion. There were people who were not Jews, who wanted to be Jews, who converted to the Jewish faith because the fear of the Jews fell on them. And for one reason, they had the favor of the king. So the people were afraid. The enemies of the Jews were afraid. And they came. They wanted to be Jews. Oh, I wrote, God exalted Jesus to the highest place at his right hand. And salvation is found in no other name but his. You see? Now, the lesson of this whole story, actually, is how futile it is for us to thwart or try to change God's plan. You can never, because he is sovereign Lord. You know, the whole word of Lord and Lordship really came alive to me, actually, when we were doing reading about Exodus and Pharaoh not saying, I don't know who this Lord is, and God saying, he will know who the Lord is. I want him to know. Tell him that the Lord said. Tell him that the Lord said. Jesus always proclaiming his lordship. And it, it, it kind of exploded in me because I've sometimes used the word Lord quite lightly in prayer, just more hab habitually than anything else. But now I realize that he is Lord of all. All power, all authority belong to him. You know, and he is the plan. And so I just I want to go over again a little um, a little um, providence here. Esther was chosen by God. It almost seemed so wrong for Vashti to be removed, but God had a plan. Mm -hmm. So she had to be removed and replaced. And he had to be replaced with a Jewish queen to save the Jewish people. 
because you can never be touched with the feelings and infirmities of someone if you don't identify with that with that those people you see she was chosen by the king to be his queen she was chosen by god as a jewish queen to rescue the jews and Mordecai was chosen by God to be positioned at the king's gate. So you see, he had Esther up here in the king's bedroom, close to him, had his ear. He had Mordecai at the gate. So you see how God positioned them so that his plan would come to pass. We don't always see that, but we know that God takes care of every part of his plan. And I thought God has chosen us. He ch he's chosen where we live He's chosen where we work. He's chosen where, where we do our recreation, where we have our hobbies, where we shop. He's chosen us. And as Acts 17, 26 says, he determines the period we're born in. He determines the boundaries of our dwelling the play and the, the places that we dwell in. Uh, sometimes I say to Mike, let's, let's back up and leave and go live somewhere else. And he goes, no, we can't. He he's kind of grounds me again. No, we can't. God chose where we live now. We're here. For, this is the time and the place. We may be able, he may move us some other time, but for now, he, we're here. And you can't come into my neighborhood and be a light to my neighbors because you can't identify with them as a neighbor. I can't do the same for you. I can't come into your workplaces, but God's put you in your workplaces, all of us, in our workplaces, in every situation, for his plan and his purpose. And we need to understand that so that we are effective. And, we, and, we, and like Esther, we'd say, if I perish, I perish. Because there's one reason he puts us there, and that is so he could rescue people yeah. and bring them to him. So it says over here, he places us so that those around us will seek God and feel their way towards him and find him. He never stops and will never stop rescuing people till the day he comes back again, you know. And that is the story. I thought we could close with reading. If you have an NIV, I want to just remind us again of this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was, <coughs> is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory and that's the story of Esther and I thought we could end with just singing a chorus of what Brian led us with this morning to show that God is always working behind the scenes you know never doubt that He's got a plan and a purpose.